verses 1 to 20. This can be found on page 60 in the Bibles in the chairs. Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. There I'm on, I'm on. Let me say good morning again. You have seated yourselves, you did that. 
whether you heard it or not. Um, and could I also ask you to um, uh, grab a, a Bible and look back up to Exodus 19, page 60 uh, in uh, the church Bibles. It'd be great if you could have that open uh, in front of you. Hopefully you're getting there, so uh, let, me, let me pray that God would speak to us as we uh, look through this now. Father God, we thank you that you are the same gloriously holy God that we read of in your word. So please help us now as we, as we read, as we dig into it, your word. Help us to glimpse your glory so that you would shape us and conform us to be a holy people. In your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What would it be like to meet God? Have you ever wondered? What would, what would it actually be like to stand in his presence? Let's just say that in three days' time, you were told that you were going to be in that situation, that you were going have, to have to meet God. How would you react to that? How would you feel? What preparations would you make? Well, that is, of course, the position God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, find themselves in in Exodus chapter 19. They have been rescued from slavery in Egypt. Um, and they're about to be given the Ten Commandments uh, here at Mount Sinai. But before God does that, he reminds them about how it is possible for them to meet with him and be blessed by him. And I guess that they, just like us, might have had quite mixed motives about the prospect of meeting God. Uh, uh, but I'm suspecting, uh, well, I'm hoping, <laughs> that you would be excited about it, about that prospect. And I, I suspect that actually most of us would really love to meet God face to face. Because we would think that that would be a life-changing experience. We'd, we would expect a blessing, great blessing, hopefully, from such an occurrence. So let me highlight three things. Three surprising things that happen as God prepares his people to meet with him here in uh, Exodus 3. Here's the, uh, Exodus 3, not Exodus 3. Three things, Exodus 19. That's what it is. Here's the first. I'll get myself out of that model. Here's the first. God meets and blesses his people in the most unpromising of places. We often romanticize spirituality, don't we? We um, go out into the beauty of nature, maybe up some fantastic uh, mountaintop, um, uh, uh, you know, or, we, or we find ourselves in some beautiful cathedral, or, or we go to a monastery, or, or maybe even come here to church, and we, and we think that we'll be closer to God there. We feel we'll be closer to God here in church. But where does God draw near the Israelites and meet them? Verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. Ever since Exodus chapter 3, God has been basically saying to the Israelites time and time again, I'm going to rescue you, and I'm going to take you to the promised land, to, to Palestine, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that's uh, yeah, so prosperous and fertile. But where has he taken them? <laughs> Here they are in the wilderness of Sinai. 
Now, I don't know what you got in your uh, Middle Eastern geography GCSE, but Sinai is further away from the Promised Land than Egypt. The direct route, is, as you can see, is, is uh, northeast. But where are they heading? They're heading south. So God has led them in almost the opposite direction from where he said he was going to take them. And rather than being a land flowing with milk and honey, <laughs> this is basically a, 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 mountainous, wild, a mountainous desert, a wilderness. Far worse than where they'd come from. Far worse than even Egypt. In other words, God says, I'm going to take you over here, farther away than there, and worse. And that is where he draws near. That is where he meets them. And he says to them, so, do you trust me? And folks, it is often so. You give your life to Jesus. You, you, you make him Lord of your life. Uh, you say, say I'm, I'm putting everything in your hands. I'm, I'm trusting you with it, with it all. And then you watch as your whole life goes downhill from there. Weeks or months or years later, you might find yourself in a situation where you're asking yourself, what, what happened? I gave myself to the Lord and things have only got worse and worse. And if you admit it, you wonder if God is taking you actually in the opposite direction of where you hoped he would, of where you thought he had promised he was going to take you. So often, the story of the journey to blessing for God's people in the Bible follows this pattern, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Uh, you know the story. I think many of you all know the story of Joseph and the amazing technicolor dream coat. Well, in Joseph's dreams, God promises him blessing, doesn't he? <laughs> and then takes him through betrayal and uh, uh, slavery, and unjust imprisonment, and a whole host of other troubles before the blessing comes. And we could go on and on. Abraham, same, same kind of thing. Uh, Jacob, Esther, uh, Ruth and Naomi, David and Daniel, uh, and many others. Uh, but why, you might ask, why didn't God just bless them there and then? Well, I think in case of Joseph, to take him, for example. I think it was because he was well on the way to being an utterly spoiled brat, wasn't he? <laughs> uh, and he was, he was tearing his family apart with his pride and his sense of entitlement. And so God needed to take him on a journey to help him to see the, the depths, the real depths of his sin so that he would turn to him and repent. But, 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 but again, why didn't God just tell him that? <laughs> well, folks, have, have you ever tried to tell someone they're a sinner? I think it's like trying to tell a teenager to tidy up their bedroom. It doesn't really go down that well, does it? The reformed slave trader and great hymn writer John Newton once wrote in a letter. He wrote this. No one ever learned that they were a sinner by being told. They have to be shown. Folks, the pathway to blessing runs through the desert. It takes you through difficulty and trial. And often that is where God meets us and he works his grace into our lives and purifies us. So the question is, are you ready for that?
We need to be, but I suspect many of us are not. And that's why uh, we also need to see how, secondly, we obey God. Whether it's in the desert times of life or, or in the good times, we obey God because he first rescued us. Have a look at verse 3, will you? While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Folks, it's really striking how God talks about the rescue he has given the Israelites there. Did you notice it? How he describes it? On eagles' wings. Do you know what that means? That means the Israelites, they they didn't fight their way out. They didn't negotiate their way out. They didn't tunnel their way out. This, This wasn't escape to victory, if you're old enough to remember that film. No, what God is trying to get across is that when an eagle brings you out... You don't do anything. (laughs) The Israelite salvation, your salvation, it, it did not depend on your abilities. You did nothing to earn it. It was a gift by sheer grace. I think the, um, First of the Lord of the Rings film shows this beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen that film or, you've, or you, maybe you read the book. It's the same there. But there's a moment um, in the film where one of our heroes, Gandalf, has been uh, betrayed uh, by Saruman and, and captured and kept prisoner on top of this really tall uh, tower with, with no hope of escape. But then he manages to catch a moth that's flying by in his hand and he whispers in its ear just, just to cry for help and sends it on its way. And then a short while later, Gandalf is, a, is about to be, to be killed because he will not come over and join the dark side. Come and, uh, sorry, that's a different film. That's Star Wars, isn't it? That's not Lord of the Rings. But he, he won't go and join the bad guys. <laughs> and, and you see as, this, as Saruman is, is toying with Gandalf, this huge, awesome, amazing eagle just swoop into the tower from behind. And, and as Gandalf falls off the edge, <sighs> the eagle catches him, flies him off to safety. Now, who is it who played the major role in that rescue? <laughs> no brainer. It was the eagle, wasn't it? Where would Gandalf be without the eagle? He'd be dead. <laughs> All he did was just whisper, help to the moth. And the eagle swoops in. And so it was for the Israelites. They cried out to the Lord, and he swooped in to save them. And so it is for us too. Uh, we, we cry out to him for deliverance from our sins, and he sends Christ to the cross to clear them away for us. We contribute nothing to our salvation. Nothing at all. <laughs> apart from our sins. <laughs> apart from our, our desperate need for salvation. And so God says to the Israelites, and to us to never forget that you were only here. You can only meet me because I rescued you. You can only obey me because I rescued you. You can only be blessed by me because I rescue you. Do you notice that's the, that's the order here in these verses? Verses four to six. It's firstly, the saving acts of God. Secondly, 
then our response of obedience. And thirdly, the blessing that our obedience brings. And the order in which those things come, massively, massively important for our understanding of the Bible. And ultimately for our faith ourselves. God saves you by sheer grace. And then he says to you, now because I've saved you, obey me. It's not, obey me, I'll swoop in on the eagle's wings and then I'll save you. No, 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 no. I've saved you. So therefore you obey. And, and, and if you do, then you'll find incredible blessings in that. Nothing in your mind must upset that sequence, must, must get that order out of sync. Why? Why is that so important? Well, let's just imagine two people, shall we? Uh, first guy, we'll call him Larry the Legalist. And, and he's flipped the order. And he's saying, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. And then we've got Gloria, the grace giver. I know, I know, terrible name. But let's go with it. Let's run with it for the sake of the illustration. Gloria, the grace giver. And she's going with the order here. And she's saying, I'm accepted by God, therefore I now obey. Now, both of these people, outwardly, they'd look pretty much the same. They both look like they are trying to obey God and, and live for him and, and, and follow him. But Larry is motivated by fear. As his salvation depends totally on his own performance. Have I done enough? Have I done enough? But Gloria, on the other hand, she'll be motivated by love, gratitude, and joy. Because she gets how deep her sin is and how, how her salvation is, is totally an unmerited gift. She, she couldn't earn it, do anything towards it. So now she just delights in it. Larry is, is essentially actually still stuck in his, his sin. He's, he's operating self-centeredly. I mean, it's, it's self-centered, isn't it? To say, if I do all the right things, if I do this and that and the other thing for God, then, then God will... God will bless me and answer my prayers and take me to heaven. I mean, why is he obeying? Why is he obeying God? Just to get things from him, like he's a vending machine. Oh, Gloria. Oh, she, well, she knows. She's already been liberated and she has everything she needs in Christ Jesus. She's already been saved by grace. So, so, so why does she obey? She doesn't obey to get things from God, but to get God and enjoy him as he enjoys her. Folks, if you, if you understand his rescue, if you understand what he's done for you, you obey God to, to love him and please him and delight in him and, 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 and reflect him and honor him. You, you'd do anything for him if you really got the rescue. Do you see utterly different dynamics internally with these two people and an utterly different outcome too Larry's obedience is almost always conditional by, by which I mean when he gets to the wilderness what, what is Larry going to do he's, he's going to instantly be, going, be moaning going thinking, thinking okay I've, I've been pretty good I've done all the right things I, I've read my bible I go to church I've, I've been trying to pursue sexual purity. I, I, I give to the poor and try and help the needy. And, and yet, uh, things aren't going very well. You know, look at others and, you know, they don't do these things and they're perfectly happy. What's going on? 
I didn't sign up for this. And what will Larry do? Will he give up, won't he? Or, or, he'll, or he'll keep trudging on resentfully, getting bitterer and bitterer. It's always, well, either way, whatever he does, it's going to crush his joy and he's going to fail in his attempts to save himself. And folks, can I just say that if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever felt like Larry, then, then you've probably been getting the order wrong. It's always rescue first, then obedience. It never works the other way around. So for those of us who are Christians here, our first thought as we wake each morning shouldn't be, how can I live today to please God? You might be thinking, that sounds like a great thing, a great way to start the day. Wouldn't it be great if we actually did start the day saying something like that? But it wouldn't be good, good discipleship, it wouldn't. We should really wake up every morning and we should, we should say, we should pray, thank you God that you're pleased with me. Thank you, God, that you loved me so much, that you rescued me, that you sent your son to die for me, to take away my sin. We thank God for Jesus before we step out in faith and seek to live for him and obey him. We start with something God has done for us, which we did not deserve. It always starts with him. So let me ask you, If you are a Christian here this morning, have you done that this morning? Have you thanked God for saving you? We obey God because he first rescued us. Here's the third thing. God blesses us and others through our obedience. I wonder if you saw the blessings there in verses 5 and 6 as we read them. God, God says, you shall be firstly my treasured possession. <laughs> the entire universe belongs to God. So for, for God to say, for God to call us his treasured possession, is for him to, him to basically say, you're the, you're the apple of my eye. I, I, delight, I take particular delight in you. And if that doesn't give you confidence that we are indeed loved and valued and that God does want to meet with you and bless you, then I, I don't know what will. But it should also make us ask, it should make us ask, why? Why? Me? And not the other nations? If you're an Israelite, that's what you should have been asking. Uh, why me and not all these other people around me? And the answer to those questions is in the other two blessings. As God goes on to say also, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, priests is a representative. And so for Israel to be a kingdom of priests, it means that they are to represent God to the world. And they're also to be a holy nation. To be holy means to be set apart for God's service. And so the Israelites were to be distinct from everyone else around them. So they might represent God, so they might serve him without distraction or compromise. So you see, if you're a Christian, God has saved you not simply for your own good. The privilege of being God's people is not just for us to delight and rest in No, God always sends his people 
out into the world. He always saves his people to send them out to share his blessings with others. Which is why the Apostle Paul, writing to the early Christians, told them, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, which I guess is just another way of saying a kingdom of priests, isn't it? Do you see the, the language of Exodus 19 here? A holy nation, God's special, treasured possession. Why? Why has God made them that? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why did God rescue Israel? So that through them, the nations might see that God is the Lord. Why did God rescue you? So that through us, as a church, other people would see that God is the Lord. Which is why Peter goes on a few verses later to say, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. God wants us to obey so that folks might see the difference that gospel-motivated obedience makes. Now, folks, that requires us to live distinctive lives, doesn't it? I mean, so often we, we, want to, um, we want to make connections and fit in with the people around us. But what will attract people to the message of salvation? To, to, what will attract people to Christ? Isn't our, isn't our sameness with other people, our similarities, it's our distinctiveness. It is the difference the gospel makes to a community like ours that, that will make people step back and go, whoa, whoa, what's going on there? It will provoke questions. That, that might sound a bit strange at first. So let, let, me, let me paint a picture of what that, that kind of looks like in, in practice. When the gospel gets your ego sorted so that you're not constantly whipping back and forth between thinking too much of yourself or too little of yourself, when the gospel kind of demotes, uh, de- yeah, demotes or, or decenters your ego by humbling it into the dust with the knowledge that you are a sinner uh, and then affirming it to the skies by telling you that you're a son or a daughter of the king, a, a, a treasured possession, no less. When the gospel does that, that just shuts the ego up. It just says to the, to the ego, shut up. What are you whining about? Why are you so unsettled all the time? So unhappy. (laughs) You have everything you need in the gospel. Uh, And and folks, when you're in a group of about five or six people like that, who've who've had that kind of gospel surgery done to them, so you're not too down on yourselves and not too up on yourselves, or as C.S. Lewis once said, you don't think less of yourself or more of yourself. You just think of yourself less. If you do life with folks like that, that is an incredibly rare and and beautiful community to be a part of. What remarkably transparent relationships you will have with one another. Such honesty. Such comfort. No pecking order. No need to constantly be trying to prove yourself. Put on a game face. No biting and devouring and imposing your will on others to get what you want. No, no scrambling for supremacy. It's beautiful. It's, it's incredible. 
That kind of community. And of course, when the ego is put in its place, that doesn't just mean good relationships. It also means money, sex, and power operate totally differently in your life. They're no, no longer things to be grabbed and grasped after for your pleasure. But you give them back to God to be used for his glory and others' good. So folks, therefore, a godly community that has gospel-changed hearts is going to be a community that shows the world something amazing, <laughs> something incredibly rare, something different. And that is what God calls us as a church to be. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And folks, if we, if we lived out what Jesus taught his disciples, if we lived like the way Jesus taught his disciples to live, isn't that what we'd be? Wouldn't we be the light of the world? We really would. And, and others would look at us and they'd get caught by the glare. And they'd go, what is going on over there? Why are they, why are they like that? Why are they so different? And surely they would ask us questions. So folks, don't fail to ask the question, why me? Why has God saved me? Because he has saved you for a purpose. And he wants to bless you in that purpose. He really does. And you will never fully experience his blessings if you don't first learn to trust him and the rescue he has given you. And then, to obey. Let me pray. Let me pray that we do that. Oh, Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much that through Jesus you have done that incredible, all-sufficient work of saving us from sin and making us your treasured possession. We could not be more loved. And we thank you that you're in the business of making us more and more like Jesus. So that as your representatives, as your holy nation, we might bless others with the joy of gospel grace. Just as much as we, as we have been blessed by that gospel grace ourselves. Be using us, we pray, Father, this week, even this day, to proclaim the praise of Christ in all we do and say. Amen.